0: If you got a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Luke chapter 19 this morning. I told you last week we were going to be spending two weeks in Luke 19, and that is the case. Um, I want to reread the story um, from last week. If you weren't here, or if uh, it's worth reading again, I believe, even if you were with us, um, then we're going to read into the next part of the chapter. Um, and often. I love study Bibles, and I love the headings that uh, God allowed to be put into the Scripture, but they weren't originally part of the text. Of course, even the verses and chapters were put in later. So sometimes the different different ways our Bibles divide the text kind of uh, helps us or hurts us seeing the whole picture. Um, and and there is a, a connection between the first part of nineteen, the second part of nineteen, that I think we often overlook, often miss. But I hope we can, bring, uh, we can bridge that gap today um, and see how Zacchaeus' story really inspired and led to the story, the parable that Jesus tells afterwards. So if you've got a Bible, I would love for you to follow along with us. We're going to begin reading um, in Luke 19. Um, if you've seen anything that catches your eye, some verses, some words, certain verses, I'd encourage you to highlight, underline, we'll probably get to some of these, uh, some of those things that might catch your eye. But there may be something that uh, we don't cover today that I'm sure we will in the future. So, The Word of God says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He sought to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up in the sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I have given half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusations, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas, And he said to them, Do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a very little You have authority over ten cities. The second came and said, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said, you also will be over five cities. Then another came and said, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you were an store man. You collect where you do not deposit and reap where you do not sow. And he said, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I wasn't a store man, collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that in my coming I might collect the interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, give it to him who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. But bring here those enemies of mine." who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now, last week, I asked you this question. If you weren't here, this is a good question to ask you once again. What does making it look like to you? Now, making it can mean different things, right? So making it might be a broad question. Asking that question might be pretty broad for you. But every one of us has an idea or has has a dream, has passions, has desires, determinations we want to make something of ourselves we want to achieve something right and i'm sure when you were 20 making it look different than when you got to be 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 right as you get older you begin to change your priorities you begin to focus less on things and more on people and i'm sure we could learn right the younger we are we could learn from those that uh have have, have seen how um, prioritizing the wrong things that can work out But every one of us has a different idea of what making it looks like But I, I wanted to ask you and I want you to think about that once more What does it look like to you? What does it mean to you to accomplish or achieve some kind of greatness? And of course we all respond to this question differently We consider different things And, and, and then we upped the ante last time um, by framing it around eternity And of course this is church so we know we've got to bring up eternity What does making it look like for you eternally? Eternally speaking, what is success, what is accomplishment to you? We consider these questions through the lens and the, within the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was more than just a wee little man who climbed up in a tree to see what he could see. He was a very successful man taking advantage of this Roman opportunity that was given to him to leapfrog his Jewish contemporaries. He became super rich and super privileged. He followed a way that seemed to be overflowing with success, worth, and fulfillment. And of course he did, because wouldn't anybody, given that opportunity to jump stratospheres and in, 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 in society, Given the right circumstances, given the right chance, it would be hard to say no to that sort of opportunity in his day, just like it is for our in us in our day. We all have this want. We all have this desire. We all have this determination to make something of ourselves. But we discovered something in this story, and we asked this question, what if there's more to it than just finding greatness or feeling great in this life? What if there's something bigger at work here? What if the desire is really a symptom of an even greater desire? What if making it means more than what we've accepted it to mean? We came to the conclusion, and God's Word and His Spirit has helped us to arrive here, that we have a greater need. That our greatest need behind all of our ideas, all of our aspirations, all of our determinations, more than a want for success, more than a want for worth or fulfillment, we all want, we all need, we all long for Approval. We all want to feel accepted, validated, appreciated. We all want at any given season of our lives to hear and sense that someone has said to us, Well done. That every one of us needs to hear those words, needs to feel like those words have been spoken over us. And I think we're all well aware of our want and need for approval. And some people will say we need to get over that, but I'm just going to say up front that that's something we're never going to get over. We all will always need approval but it's whose approval that makes the difference. Now, we chase after it in so many ways, subconsciously in ways that we don't even pick up on, right? We do things for the approval of things or people or society that we don't even recognize, but others can tell, can't they? But here's where things get even more deep and things get a little bit complicated. Even with approval in some areas, it's almost like we become more aware of the areas that we still fall short in, right? That even when we succeed in this area, it makes this area that we don't succeed in more glaring and more difficult to deal with. With. And come on, we all fall short, don't we? And our shortcomings tower over us, don't they? That we all fall short, and sometimes if you're like me, you just deal with this stuff subconsciously that our insecurities, even though even you can be the smartest person, the best looking person, the most talented person, the richest person, but the shortcomings you still yet struggle with will always make you feel like you haven't done enough, that you'll never be enough. Success doesn't make us forget our shortcomings. It really makes them more difficult to accept. And that's just a weird thing, isn't it? Why can't we ignore those things when we clearly have so many other things going for us? Why is it the more we achieve, the more we accomplish, the more we allow our flaws to bug us? Why is it that some or most athletes or politicians and actors, they're always chasing after one more trophy? Because they'll tell you, they feel like there's still room to improve. They still feel like there's work to do. And within all of us, We all know we have our shortcomings, we all stumble, and we all fall, and that bothers us. Could it be? Could it be that this desire for approval reflects more than what any measure of success can satisfy? Could it be there's something deeper, something that goes beyond what we can see in this universe, but clearly every human being is aware of and connected to? Could it be something spiritual? What if it's something that is within, within the primal nature of every person that is asking for more that we all know and we all feel? See, I believe Zacchaeus is Exhibit A for proof of this because no matter all that he had done or achieved, when he heard that Jesus was coming into town, he had to see Him. He wanted to meet Him. And you may wonder, what was such a big deal about Jesus? Because Jesus had been going around the country proclaiming and handing out the approval and the favor and the acceptance of God in a few the first few weeks he was doing it people thought he was just another crazy wannabe messiah But the more he did it and the more he made people feel different the more people paid attention to him Jesus proclaimed on opening day of his ministry that the spirit of god is upon him because he has anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said, I'm here to give favor to those that feel like they'll never find it, favor to those that feel like they have found it but realize it's not what they were looking for. I'm here to give you the acceptance and approval from God that you were looking for in every other place in this world. Jesus had even given one of Zacchaeus' colleagues a place in his team, a place on his team giving him approval and validation that no prize or office of this world could ever give and you got to hear this when people heard those powerful words from jesus i want you to follow me can you imagine what that must have felt like for people? And of course, we, might, we weren't there, but knowing who Jesus was, knowing who Jesus is, knowing how He was making people feel and changing their lives, when He would say to people, I want you, I'm choosing you, I'm picking you, I've prayed about this, I've spent months you know, in time preparing for this, I'm choosing you, just parse that out with me. I want you to be on this team that represents the kingdom of God. This is why the religious people felt so much tension with Jesus because he was picking people they wouldn't have picked. And I think that's why Jesus intentionally picked people like Judas, right? Set a precedent that he would never reject anybody, even if they might would reject him. They would say when Jesus picked them, it made them feel changed from the inside out, made them feel right with God. It made them feel saved by God. And they would go around and proclaim to everyone that they knew that something was different. The woman at the well that Jesus changed her life, she went and told the town of Samaria, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And he accepted me. He knew my flaws. He knew my sins. He knew my, 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 my secrets and my lies. And yet he still accepted me and he still made me feel like I've never felt before. Could this be the Messiah we've been waiting for? There was that man that was born blind that Jesus healed and they tried to accuse the man and Jesus of being heretical outside of the bounds of the law in the temple and the man responded to the religious crew. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know and I don't care. What I do know is that I was blind and now I see, okay? I met Jesus and everything's different. He changed me from the inside out literally for this man. But for so many others, it was a spiritual, it was an internal change. Everyone had the same story to tell. Something was different. Something was new. And the reason why Jesus had to offer was, what He had to offer was so powerful and so fundamentally impactful to the core of every person was those shortcomings we feel, those flaws we carry around. Those are symptoms, reflections of this disconnect. We all suffer as people. There's no getting around that humans are creatures. We we were created, we have a beginning, we have an end. We all share a single Creator, a one and only God of the universe. And regardless if you believe the Scriptures, it's undeniable that there is some kind of disconnect between every one of us and God. It's In our nature, on our own, we're fallen in need of not just validation, but vindication. And the good news is Jesus came to bring this to every one of us. Romans 3 says, "Of course, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ." The solution for our longing and our desire for approval is found in and only in Jesus, Ephesians one verse six, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted. If we were accepted by grace, that means we're kept by grace. You don't earn grace. It's given to you because we couldn't earn it. Accepted by grace. Kept by grace. Jesus satisfied God for us. God accepts us through Jesus. And that's what changed everything about Zacchaeus' world. Zacchaeus had learned in life that no matter how much he made it, nothing could take the place of the one who made him. Nothing can take the place of the relationship we need with our Creator. And through Christ, salvation is not based on what we might do. It's secured by who Jesus is and what he has done. That's what we learn from the story of Zacchaeus, because Jesus proclaims to him, salvation has come to this house because Jesus came to his house. That's what made the difference. But there's more to the story than just this. We start seeing it teased out at the end of the story that leads into the second part. When Zacchaeus responds, he, he, verse 6 says he received Jesus joyfully. Literally, he welcomed him, but also internally, spiritually, he accepted Jesus. He trusted in Jesus. He received him into his heart. And then they begin to murmur and, and say bad things about both him and Jesus. But then Zacchaeus has this, in, this change of heart. real. Because for a chief tax collector to say what he says in verse 8 is radical. It's, fun. it's, it's just crazy. You would never do this. And he didn't have to do this because Jesus had already accepted him. So Zacchaeus, moved by something, he says, Lord, I'm going to give half my goods to the poor, and if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to pay them, not just what I took from them, I'm going to pay them four times as much because I'm so stinking rich, I won't, I'll still be rich after I do this. But that's not the point. I feel compelled to do something different because you have made me different. Now Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't respond and say, well, that won't be necessary. Zacchaeus didn't need this worldly good anymore because he received Jesus, and there's more. Zacchaeus felt moved, compelled to right the wrongs he had made. Zacchaeus did some wrong things in his quest to make it, but being made new, he was on a quest to do the right thing. And that's where the next part of Luke 19 is going to take us, as our conversation shifts from what is, it, what is making it look like to what, what does meaning something look like. We decided what making it looks like is all, found, is all re- re- resolved in being accepted by Christ, being approved by God. That not about what we do, but about what God has done. But because we have come to Christ, because we're made new, that we begin to desire to mean something more, to mean something in this life for eternity. When Zacchaeus gets a taste of the bigger picture, it's more complete. the more complete picture. He starts thinking about more than just making it. He starts thinking about the meaning of his life, the purpose of his life. Immediately after encountering Jesus, he starts thinking with a brand new perspective. And I think the story expedites it for the sake of the narrative. But that is what Christ does for us. The point of this text isn't that being better makes us saved. The point of this text is that belonging to Jesus will make us better. You hear that? Belonging to Jesus leads to becoming like Jesus. This is a pretty novel idea, but that's, that's the case. Zacchaeus was met, met his creator and instantly started thinking about what he had been doing with his life and how he'd been wasting his life. And it truly speaks to our lives being saved. And Jesus says in verse 10, His mission is to seek and to save that which is lost, to keep our lives from being wasted, our lives from being lost what salvation is all about jesus saves our life from being a waste he saves our life for a purpose from waste for purpose forgiven and delivered being found by god we find a way to pur- a purpose in god of course it's not just through righting the wrongs it's through avoiding the wrongs through living right it's reframing our entire lives See, before we were saved, we think and imagine everything that we receive, every opportunity, every day, it's just our own disposal to do what we want, to do it however we want, to find our way, to make our way. But when we belong to God, we feel the call to become like Jesus, to be like Jesus. We see every day, everything, every opportunity as carrying some kind of eternal significance. We talk about this a lot around here, but I think it's appropriate. We sit under the teachings in Christian institutions that would tell us that Zacchaeus was silly for wanting to change the way he lived once he received Christ. Maybe someone would say there was no reason for him to have to do what he did or do what he did, that Jesus would have said to him, oh, you don't need to do that, Zacchaeus, you keep that for yourself, eat, drink, and be merry, be full and be free. But the truth is, the liberty is, that the sort of mindset to live life for whatever we want, to do it the way we want, that's not Christian, that's not free that's not liberty at all that's not purpose that's as pagan as carnal and carnal as it can get Jesus was on his way to Calvary to die for our sins when he encountered Zacchaeus like this he invites you and I to take up our crosses and follow him not to die with him but to find life in him Luke 9 tells us earlier in the gospel if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it and will find it. Sounds like Zacchaeus found it. That even if it meant giving up everything he had, it was worth it to him. And notice, nobody told him to do this. No one said, you better or I won't. It was something he felt internally This is where it might not make sense because within us as every Christian, every Christian even, is this desire to protect and preserve and defend. But remember, what do you need more than anything? God's approval. What do you crave more than anything? God's approval. What do you have in Christ? God's approval. And His approval is greater than any success, worth, or fulfillment. So doing life God's way is the way to ensure that we continue in His peace and in His joy. The way to ensure that one day when we get to heaven, when we step into eternity, we'll hear those words we so long to hear. Well done. Jesus must have knew people were questioning Zacchaeus' sudden change of heart. Maybe wanting to ask questions about the necessity of such drastic change. Of course, Jesus loved to answer questions before they were ever asked, and thankfully he goes on to tell a parable that addresses this exact topic. Verse number 11 says, really, that what was going on around the scene here, that as he spoke these things, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So after hearing Zacchaeus declare his faith and announce his new intentions, hearing Jesus uh, hearing Jesus affirm his faith, announce his new beginning, Jesus, of course, heard the mumbling, he heard the grumbling, the wondering if Jesus expected this radical change out of everyone And verse 11 clues us in on how radical this change really was. And they're thinking in themselves, if Zacchaeus the tax collector, if Zacchaeus the politician would denounce his old ways and adopt and assume a new lifestyle of philanthropy and generosity, the end must be near. I mean, they were literally shook by this kind of proclamation. It was the one thing for a fisherman to follow Jesus, another thing for a business guy from a small town to follow Jesus, but for a political chief like Zacchaeus like someone from New York or L.A. in their day. It was insane, unbelievable, and in their minds, it must be some sort of prophecy. So Jesus, hearing and perceiving all this, he leans in knowing this was the perfect opportunity to speak to their bewilderment and their shock and all. In a world where everyone was pretty much born into their situation and was stuck there, where if you wanted to break out, you had to sell out. The concept of having a God-given opportunity to matter and find redemption, to find eternal significance, seemed foreign and far-fetched. So Jesus tells a parable about that very subject. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive from himself a kingdom, that there was a, very, uh, was a man born with destiny there was a man born to inherit a kingdom from some other side of the world. He was the king's son or he was of some sort of alliance or treaty that designated him to be the one who would inherit a kingdom. And this nobleman went to get this kingdom and to basically set his thrown up um, amongst these people. The, the phrase nobleman literally means a man of noble birth, someone with superior destiny in their genes. The word behind noble is literally eugenics. It's as if something is destined to happen. Jesus, of course, was this man. He is the Son of God, born and come to earth to set us free. But the story behind all this is that we are no longer stuck with a destiny of insignificance or hopelessness. Jesus came to change our fate. And in this parable, this nobleman highlights ten of his servants. To each he gives ten minas, or ten sums of money, about three years' worth of income total. That's a lot of money to give somebody at one time. The nobleman gave orders, hey, this is my money, I want you to use it well. Now this story isn't really about finances, it's about stewardship in the broadest of terms. Stewardship is the idea that everything we have is a gift from God, we've been tasked to use it for His cause and for His gain. Everything, everything. It's all a gift, but we have been given it for a very specific purpose, for His gain and for His cause. The term there for doing business implies and assumes profit. There's not an expectation of loss. It can't fail. And these servants were expected to not let it fail. More on that later, but verse 14 tells us this sidebar. It's not really important to the plot, but we hear it. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So Jesus, in the story... This nobleman shows up to this town that nobody knew him there. He was from a foreign land. He shows up and says, listen, I've got the deed to your town. I've got the deed to your land. I'm your new king. So, hey, you can either accept it or not, but there's not going to be a vote. There's not going to be an election. Nobody can outdo this or undo this. I'm going to be your king, so I hope y'all like it. Promise you I'm going to be a good guy. Not everyone decided to be a servant to this king. There were many more citizens in the kingdom than there were servants. There were others that this nobleman encountered those members of his kingdom he came to inherit who did not submit, who did not serve, who did not acknowledge his rule over them. Jesus wants us to know this kingdom wasn't full of his servants. It was consisted mostly of citizens that did not acknowledge his rule, and he did not force himself on these citizens. Now, we know what this story is, what this is a picture of, of course. This speaks volumes of how God interacts and intersects with every one of us. Two things we learn here. God is so merciful that he won't force his rule over anyone. Does that not really speak? Is this how merciful God is? That rather than saying, I'm God, you're my servant, you're going to worship me whether you like it or not, it's wired in you, you don't have a choice. God is so merciful, he will not make you do anything that you do not want to do. Sometimes we like that. Sometimes it would be, maybe make sense that it wouldn't be the case, but God is so merciful, it's, with, it's apart from his nature to be different. The other thing, there are so many optional rulers in this life, Jesus is often substituted, isn't he? See, we, within, by our actions, elect and place an alternate delegate in his place. We really in, we're really in two categories we either are servants who obey or citizens who rebel. Because whether we serve or not, we are in his kingdom. We are his citizens. And again, we are all under one creator. A creator whom has revealed himself exclusively through Jesus, not through any other prophet, any other religion. Jesus came to inherit this kingdom for himself with all authority, all power. Yet what makes this story even more chilling, those that did not follow Jesus would literally reject him and pledge their allegiance to Rome and Caesar over and against a criminal in just a few short days. They would cry out, give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. The demand was so violent Pilate crucified Jesus just because he was afraid of what they would do to him if he didn't Jesus did not resist he surrendered he gave up his life for them and maybe you've never put this together but a few verses after they crucify him Jesus looks at every one of those men that put him on the cross and he says father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing to their king Because Jesus came to seek and to save every lost child of God, to bring us all under God's love and into God's care. And if we want approval, if we want validation, if we want vindication, it's only found in Jesus. And if we want more than just to make something, if we want to mean something, Jesus is the only viable path available and accessible to all of us. Jesus came to die for all, to offer forgiveness and significance to all, to show us our place in eternity, not just our generation. He established a commission, a following to go to the ends of the earth, spreading a message of hope and love no matter the cost, free of charge. Do you understand that? That Jesus was so set on winning the world, He commissioned His followers, you and me, the original disciples, He commissioned His followers, go and tell the world about Me, even if it costs you your life, and it cost all of them their lives. He so loved the world, it didn't stop at the cross. He built a church that would be about loving and helping and giving hope to people, and He commissioned His followers to put others before themselves. He commanded his followers to love everyone, not just their friends. What other religion even offers anything near to this? What other offering even comes close to this? No institution of man, no religion, no philosophy holds a candle to Christianity. So the question becomes, if we resist, why haven't we surrendered to Jesus? In life today, tomorrow, and forever, who or what offers us a better alternative? And if your response to this question is, I really haven't thought about it, then my request is, how about thinking about it right now? Because you don't want to miss this. You can't afford to miss this. Your soul wants approval. You want to matter in Christ alone. We find our acceptance and we find our significance. So do you want to serve Him? Or do you want to resist Him? I think the answer is almost self-evident and your soul is pressing you right now even to give an answer if you have never before. Let me say this. Maybe you wonder why preachers and speakers like me try to persuade or present things to you like this in these environments with emotion and strings. We take our cues from Jesus but what, here's what I want to clarify. A lot of times preachers like me work up and build up the moment of decision and the enemy comes in and makes us feel nervous and uncomfortable and doubtful and makes it feel like it's an impossible thing to do. I think a lot of times we chalk it up to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't do those things. He helps. He doesn't confuse. Jesus said in the most difficult moment of his life, the Spirit indeed is willing the Holy Spirit is always willing. He's always moving. He's always helping. He's assisting. He's giving you the courage to say yes to what your soul wants so badly. So you just know there's no easier nor more natural place than these kinds of decisions, for these kind of decisions, than when the church is assembled to worship, for the strongholds can be rebuked, the chains can be broken. See, none of this to make uh, now, None of this is to make anyone feel inferior. This invitation to the superior to what we have been waiting for. The Christians and Christians, we, our souls burn for this one thing, and, and reason and calls. We need not let our minds and our hearts drift one way or another, because Jesus is going to return one day. Verse fifteen says, "And so it was when He returned." Having received the kingdom, he then commanded the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that, they might, that he might know how much every one had gained. Come on. Even if this is just a maybe. Is that a maybe you can ignore? I hope your soul hears that verse. When he returned... Having received the kingdom, he called the servants to whom he had given the stuff that they may know, that he might know what they had did with his gift. In light of all we've talked about, when Jesus comes and when his kingdom comes, we belong to him, did we become like him? That's the question you've got to ask yourself. We belong to him, did we? Did we live for his Him and His kingdom? If the Lord is returning, if His kingdom is coming, what is making it look like? I mean, if this, if this all ends up in a kingdom ruled by Jesus if everything we've got is going to be replaced, no Congress, no White House, no America, no Russia, no Canada, no United Nations, no EU, if all this is getting replaced with one Lord and one kingdom, no dollar, no economy, no Wall Street, no jobs that we have put everything into that we know and love, what if it's all going to be returned with the Lord and His kingdom and He's got a work for us to do? We don't know what it's going to be yet, but it's going to be a whole lot better than what we've been spending our time doing. What if everything that has been building up that it's all about preparing ourselves for his kingdom if it all is going to be replaced what is making it look like to you if none of our stuff goes with us none of our houses and our toys and our accomplishments in our trophies in our money none of that goes with us what is making it look like to you If we're going to push everything in a wheelbarrow up to the throne of Jesus, and he's going to say, I gave you all that stuff, what did you do with it for me? What is making it look like? What does meaning something look like and lead to? We find two good examples. It says one came and the master says, and he says, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said, Well done, good and faithful servant, because you were faithful in a very little here. Take authority over more. Now, I don't know if this is little. I don't know what this really means to us, but I just know there is a clear transaction. There's a clear transition from what this guy did to what he was going to do. From what this guy lived on earth to how it's going to be in heaven. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that means. I just know that there's a clear fact that something's different happens again this guy says hey I've got five you gave me one here's five he says hey you will also be ruler over five cities but then contrast just to this other guy Who said, hey, you know, you gave me this thing and I know how you people are. You were going to expect me to do something with it, take care of it. So I put it in a box, I put it on a shelf, and here it is. It's just like it was when you gave it to me. I know how you guys kind of, you know, you leaders are, you kings are. You're kind of, you know, a little bit corrupt and you're a little bit crazy. So here, I didn't mess it up. And then Jesus kind of doesn't respond too well to that, does he? Jesus tells this most inoffensive version of the story. Here's a guy who didn't make a mess of his gift. He just didn't make the most of it. Hello? He didn't make a mess. He didn't use it for bad stuff. He just didn't use it for anything. That's the sin. That's the offense that most of us are most guilty of. I think Christianity to many has been presented as this ticket booth where we come and we get our ticket and we go home and we frame it and we make sure the weather doesn't fade it. And that sort of casual, empty religion is condemned by Jesus in this Scripture. Christianity is an invitation to a kingdom, to kingdom living, where every day we live for His gain and for His glory. It's a mantle that's laid upon us, designating us with divine acceptance and significance. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That God has anointed you with acceptance from heaven. He's anointed you with significance for the kingdom. Every day can count for His kingdom. If the world rejects you, it can bounce right off. You can have passion and purpose. It's burning within every one of us. Every day can count for the kingdom in some way, big or small, noticed or unnoticed. Verse 26 and 27, it says, For I say to you that everyone who has, been, who will, be, who has will be given and from whom him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And then he goes back to those other people. Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. The end. It's kind of a harsh way to end the story. One of the servants who wasted his gift is demoted, but what does that mean? I don't know. And then the citizens are destroyed. What does that mean? I don't know. Because they did not want the kingdom to over them. Here's what I do know. Ultimately, The lazy servant and the rebellious citizens got what they wanted. Right? They didn't want him to be their king. He didn't want to use what the guy gave him. They got what they wanted. They asked for this. They couldn't have wanted it though, really, right? More than making it, more than... Anything else, we want to matter. We want to know that, what, that who we are and what we've done is worth something. We all want to hear those amazing, powerful words, well done. Underneath what culture tells you you want, underneath what your heritage and family tells you you want, and underneath your flesh, naturally or easily, what it attaches itself to, your soul wants something more. We want to belong to something. We want to become someone It's in our bones, it's in our blood, it's in our genes. Jesus came to earth to open our hearts and minds to His rule and His reign. So many of us, we don't realize the value of what we've been given. Life, love, opportunity, we can use those things for so much good, for so much kingdom gain and kingdom glory, to find our true self, to find our future self. It starts and ends with this simple question. Have you surrendered to Jesus, or are you resisting His reign? There's only one, there's only a yes to one of those. But the bigger meaning of that question is, have you surrendered to, to acceptance and significance? Are you resisting the very things you want the most? Now, I know accepting Jesus, res, surrendering to Jesus might mean saying no to other stuff that you want, but here's the real question. Have you surrendered, if acceptance and significance is only in Jesus, have you surrendered to acceptance and significance? And if not, why are you resisting the one thing you want the most? It doesn't make any sense, does it? One last thing. Verse 13 tells me that Jesus called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minus. He's been calling and giving, but today I think specifically he's calling to this place, and he's wanting to give repurposed like he did with Zacchaeus. You know why he gave out ten lump sums? Because only 10 people came. If 20 had come, he'd give out 20. If 100 had come, he'd give out 100. The point is if we follow, he will provide, he will direct. He has as much anointing, he has as much power to lay on you as you are willing to bring to him for him to anoint, as we are willing to present our lives to him. If we choose Jesus, we find acceptance and significance. If we surrender to Jesus' reign, we will find eternal gain. But the choice is up to you. The choice is up to us. Do we surrender or do we resist? Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for this very challenging question you've put all over all of us. Lord, obviously we see that there's no reason to resist you. There's no reason to say no to you. There's no reason to say yes to anybody else because in you is the thing that we're looking for the most. Only in you do we find the acceptance, the significance, the purpose that we have when waiting for. Father, I pray that you would move in this house today and there might be someone who's struggling with this question. They don't know if they're willing to give up. They don't know if they're willing to say no to this and yes to you. They don't know what the ramifications might be. But Lord, in light of eternity, if there is a kingdom coming, if there is a Jesus who is coming again, if his kingdom is going to surpass and rule over every other kingdom, if everything we've ever done leads up to you returning and it's all about preparing for your kingdom, Father, help us to ask ourselves this question. Are we ready? Did we become the person that we wanted to become? Did we surrender what we should have to you, so that we might become the person we were created to be? Father, I know this doesn't all get answered in one day and our lives might not change in one day, but the story of Zacchaeus inspires me that if I just say yes to you, you're going to tell me what to do. If, I do, if we just say yes to you, you're going to move and, 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 and live within us and you're going to give us the unction and the desire that we need. So, Father, I pray that you would do the hard part. You would do the part that involves your spirit convicting hearts and challenging our souls and reconciling with every one of us what really matters. And you would bring, Lord, if ten people came to the king back in those days, Lord, I believe there's ten in this house today that might want to say, I want God to anoint me. I want God to put his mantle on me. I choose acceptance. I choose significance. I choose his eternal reign over anything else. So, God, I'm challenging you and and I'm asking you, Lord, raise up some people in this house today. They would be willing to fall on their knees and say, Lord, I surrender, I surrender, I choose Jesus over everybody and everything else. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior. Amen.